0: The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know, playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Oh, Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to eleven NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs, presented by Google Pixel, continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 235 of What Most People Think and I hope you are having a good week. We're recording this on the Monday and I went out, went out on Saturday of last week, bit of an all-dayer and on the Sunday I had that tragic thing of thinking that i had escaped the hangover. Got up, felt okay, just went about my business on the Sunday, felt okay, went for a run even on Sunday early evening, still felt okay and then about 7pm, just when you think it's safe to go back in the water or do a reference from the 70s. <laughs> I felt like absolute shit. And it was just it was just a slap in the face. I deserved that. I really did deserve that. But anyway, it was a good fun event too, a bit of daytime club and you can't beat it. Also, thanks for everybody that came to the tour events last week. I was did the tour show in Aldershot for the first time. We had the best part of 500 people there. And that was awesome. And then I did Tring, on the Friday and I had a, well, I had a very traumatic moment on the way to Tring and I shared on social media and thanks for all the uh, sympathy. But I went through a McDonald's drive through and I ordered a Big Mac meal and yeah, I got uh, two miles up the road, opened it up and it was a McChicken sandwich. And you know, you just, you know, when you're just trying to catch a break in life. I was just like, things ain't going my way, man. I just getting this feeling like 2024 is not going to be my year. A McChicken sandwich meal. I'm not on a diet. That's the only other reason you'd have a chicken McSandwich meal. And also, I've got to say this about the shrinkflation that is going on in food is fucking off the scale. I had a sausage and egg McMuffin the other day, because the diet is going really well this year, let me tell you. I had a sausage and egg McMuffin, and I swear to God, I could hold it between my finger and my thumb. You know, you used to hold it in your hand. You can hold it between your finger and your thumb now. It's like a fucking vol Anyway, on to today's guest, Andy Zaltzman. Andy Zaltzman is on the show. So obviously I you know Andy well from the comedy circuit over the years. He is the uh, the host of News Quiz, a, a brilliant host he is. And as I wanted to pick his brain about, you know, what's going on in politics, the recent furore over the News Quiz, when a couple of Tories said that they felt it was showing uh, impartiality. But I also want to talk to him about, you know, what happens to comedy you know as labour get closer to power also cricket so there's a bit of cricket chat here I tried to discipline myself but you know here's a man Andy Zoltzman he's got his dream job as a comedian and then he also gets to be the stats guy for test match special very few people get to do two dream jobs in a lifetime and of course he's got the brilliant bugle podcast which you can check out I think they're doing some live events give Andy a follow and uh, that conversation will be coming up New Patreons. So just remember that if you are a patron, go to patreon.whatever, just Google Patreon, right? And um, you get it early, ad-free and with bonus content. So for example, today, I think it's like an eight-minute extra section, which is uh, Andy answering questions from uh, my Patreon community. And there's some good info in there. There's some good... Because the thing is, once I tell them it's Patreon only, they're a bit more candid, right? Let's put it that way. Uh, But we also do for... And definitely at the top of the show, we welcome new VIP patrons. And we've got Mark Colloquin. Mark Colquhoun. No, is that one of those Scottish ones? Is that Mark, Mark Colhoun? Mark Colloquin, <laughs> Colloquin. Mark Colloquin. I mean, this name could be... I don't know how to pronounce this. It's very hard to take the piss out of a name you can't even pronounce. Mark Colloquin. Mark Colquhoun. It sounds like a person that just realises they're drunk as they're saying your surname. Mark Colloquin. You know, you know that kind of drunk you get where you're like your brain is actually quite focused. You know that weird drunk, but your body drunk, but not brain drunk. So you don't know until you go to speak. This often happens when um when you're doing a gig and you'll speak to a punter down the front, and and because it's a tour show, they might not have spoken themselves for the best part of thirty minutes. And then they open their mouths and you can just see that they are fucking confused at what comes out. And the good thing is, if it's a bloke, they'll think, okay, maybe I shouldn't be speaking right now. Uh, and I have to say, this is a gender stereotype. But if it's a lady, it doesn't stop them. No, they'll just go, no, I will go posha. I know, comedian man. They, it's incredible. You have to respect it with a, a drunk female punter. They just think, basically... If you go toe-to-toe with them, they don't give a fuck if there's 500 other people there laughing at them. It is a battle between you and them, and they're never going to lose. So it, and that's it now. It sounds like I'm being sexist, but you ask any female comedian who is the hardest to handle as a heckler when drunk, and I guarantee it is female audience members. Uh, David Domain is our super patron, and he listens to the show and gives feedback on issues arriving out of the previous episodes. So obviously, we had... Felicity Ward last week, which was like, oh my God, that's two weeks on the spin, wheel of discuss cricket. I promise the next one won't be about cricket. But we had Felicity Ward on, and I was also talking about the size of the British military. So, David Domain says, according to the House of Commons Library, in April 2023, the total size of the full-time UK armed forces, trained and untrained, was just under 152,400. Over half of these personnel were within the army, with the remainder equally split between the Royal Navy and Royal Marines and Air Force. I mean, does anybody else feel like they're teeing us up for something here? We're seeing these articles about, oh, we're not quite ready. There's not quite, We're not quite big enough to fight. And all. Are, they, are they trying to get us ready? for? I mean, like, I know it seems like a joke and everyone's had good fun talking about how you would conscript the modern British society, but it, they do keep coming back to this story here. We will be an absolute walkover if it comes to a land war. The only way you can motivate the modern British public into giving a shit would be to make it about not what it's about. So if they said, oh, Russia's going to come over here and they're going to take over, and people are like, oh, I don't want to die for the But if you said, Russia want to take your broadband, then immediately, Jen said, millennial, like, right, where, where do I fucking sign off? <laughs> and what about if it was like um, my generation, if they said, uh, the Russians want to take your fancy mattresses, because we've had some fancy mattresses of late, we go, those fucking, I have never slept this well. No one takes my fancy mattress. Or you could say the Russians are coming to take the electric cars of people that have just bought them because, my God, those people want to talk about the fact that they bought electric cars. <laughs> don't they? That's what they would say. Yeah, don't make it about ideological. Don't make it about patriotism. There's not. A, it won't get enough people signed up. Just say, look, they're coming for your board band, your mattresses, and your new electric car you won't shut up about.
0: What most people think.
1: Okay, the thank you is to the uh, Disney Plus channel. It's not an advert, by the way. It's not an advert. I just, I just love it. It's got so much good stuff on there. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculously good. They could charge more. Don't tell them, but they could charge more. So, I'm um, currently, my son, we're watching the Marvel Infinity Saga. So it's Iron Man for all those films, and there is that moment where you go, you know, in these films where you think, oh broadly, it's just punchy, punchy laser stuff. They're not like serious injuries, but every once in a while, like, like someone. <laughs> gets killed in a brutal way and you kind of go halfway through the film now and you it's, it's so bad in it because like we you know when you have a kid you go i'm going to be so strict on stuff like that my mum let me watch, watch stuff that used to give me nightmares but then now i see something like that in a film and i say son are you all right he's like yeah i like that bit there are you traumatized he's like no because he just wants to watch violence he doesn't fucking know whether he's traumatized or not i guess it'll all come out in the counseling Okay, and the fuck you is to, well, the coverage of Nicola Sturgeon's testimony at the COVID inquiry, right? So she gave her testimony last week, and a lot of it focused on whether or not she, the the Scottish government had politicised their reaction to COVID. Lots of people, it seemed, deleted or withheld their WhatsApps and, you know, various sort of big, genuine issues coming out of the inquiry. But um, So she had a big day in the hot seat. And then uh, one of the big political podcasts, right? I'm going to say which one it is. I don't normally like digging out other things, but I think it's relevant here. newscast, which I do like, right? Uh, But it is a BBC podcast and it says newscast, right? So it's got to be treated kind of like a form of news. So it's got to be impartial. And the way that they covered, it was two people deputising for the normal presenters. The way that they recovered, they covered her testimony was so fucking sycophantic. It was bizarre. I think the first five minutes... Was given over to them saying, Oh, she, she actually cried. Nicola cried in the seat. She, That's so unlike her. That's so unlike her. God, we saw, we saw such a different side to the former. I thought, Wait a minute, is, is this a news podcast or is this two BFFs? You know, when there's like a, a group of three girls who are friends and two of them break off and have a coffee to talk about the other friend to see if she's all right? Is that what this is? It was really weird. It was really weird. They spent ages on that. And then when it came to the idea of whether or not they politicised the way that they handled their pandemic reaction, they basically gave about 30 seconds to that. They were like, well, I was put to the former first minister that that she politicised, but she said they didn't. So moving on, I was like, really? Is that really? Because we all saw it, man. Like we all saw it playing out in real time. I mean, right from the... I mean, there were bits of evidence that suggested that they consciously did that, but also... Did you remember, like, the facile differences in Scottish policy compared to UK government that just so clearly seemed to be there because she wanted to basically reinforce this idea that she'd suddenly become the queen-slash-fucking-emperor-slash-president of Scotland? So, you know, if, if the UK government had the rule of six, she had the rule of eight, do you know what I mean? If the UK government went to 10 a reef, she'd have gone to 11 a reef, to quote an old joke. But the... <laughs> But, you know, there was there was evidence that this kind of thing was genuinely going on. Like, at the, quite a serious level, there was an email from this John Swinney's guy. Well, I don't know what his, his official role was, but he's quite senior. And he basically... The, well, they didn't want to impose a travel ban on Spain because they felt that if they did, it might harm Scotland's efforts to join the EU, right? It's pretty stark. Now, whether or not that became official policy without whether or not that was what everyone thought it was the kind of thing that you know if it had been put in front of boris johnson or rishi sunak or matt hancock we'd be saying well, this looks fucking dodgy but um you know it's put in front of Nicola. she has a little cry and we're, <laughs> we're all left going <laughs> it's just it's just so unlike her is she okay is she okay <laughs> i mean it, fair fair play to sturgeon man she's fucking good at what she does she could be confronted on the deleted WhatsApps, the politicisation of uh, the COVID response of Scotland, and, and you get political journalists going, mm, you OK, home? But are you OK? All right, let's get into the chat with the brilliant Andy Zoltzman. So for a variety of reasons, I am delighted to welcome Andy Zoltzman to What Most People Think. Andy, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, I, I should say that you and I yesterday decided to push back the time of this record, somewhat <laughs> yes. foolishly thinking that, because we'd originally said 11am UK time, the England cricket team at that point were chasing down a big total against India. I think both of us somewhere in our brains thought that might be the good bit. So yes. for safety, we pushed it to half 12 and in fact, it was done by about 9am.
0: Yes, but I think it was worth taking that precaution, Jeff, because if England yeah. had won that game, it would have been one of, yeah, you know, not just their greatest victories in cricket, But because cricket is obviously the greatest thing ever invented, therefore one of the greatest achievements in human history. So we'd have needed a bit of time to calm down after that. So if anything, I think we could have pushed it back a few more hours, to be honest. So, yeah, we'll talk more about cricket
1: uh, in a while and how you've ended up essentially doing two dream jobs in your life. But um, there was a thing I didn't know if you were aware of, but Radio 4 Pick of the Week was on... um, last night and one of the clips that they selected was from the episode that I was on with yourself hosting news quiz recently and of course it was in the week after the Hugh Merriman the Tory MP who came out and said the news quiz was hopelessly biased and and, and all of that sort of stuff but I don't know if if you're aware that so I sort of put it to you before I said yeah I'm going to pretend that I was brought in last minute after the scandal <laughs> and that the culture secretary uh, the right honourable Lucy Fraser essentially had a hotline to the news quiz producers so God bless her, the presenter of Pick of the Week thought that was what had happened. (laughs) So not only did she think that was what happened, she said uh, and then right-wing journalist Jeff Norcott was brought in at the last minute and the two (laughs) regular comedians had been jettisoned. So I just think for the integrity of the
0: program, can you confirm
1: that that wasn't what happened?
0: That wasn't what happened, but I think it's a better story if that is what happened, Jeff. So I think you should yeah. you should spread that. I mean, it's it, it's good for your profile. Yeah, it's good for the BBC in a way to to, you know, to show that they will go out of their way to <laughs> sack comedians just to get you on. But no, that isn't that isn't what happened.
1: You know, I tried to preempt it that week. because the moment I saw that scandal happening, scandal or, or sort of a shitstorm occurring is I thought immediately people will think that I've been drafted in at the behest of the government and people say, well, this is how fascism begins, that sort of thing. (laughs) So I tried to preempt it and then I made a joke about it on the show and it turns out some people thought that that was what had happened. (laughs)
0: Well, I mean, we saw that with the, with the Hugh Merriman interview, that he did seem to think that the news was some sort of factual documentary program. So uh, that's, I guess, the way people interpret comedy these days. But I guess that's, I mean, also, yeah, whenever you're on the show, you're always very critical of the conservative government. And, and this is true, I think, a lot of, uh, across yeah, what you might call conservative media or or right-wing. We don't really like the terms left and right-wing. But, I mean, the, the Telegraph has been hugely critical of government a lot in recent years so i don't know quite how you achieve this sort of mythical goal of perfect balance in a comedy show bearing in mind that the government is being criticized from um as we've made the point in that show not just what you might consider conservative media but also from their own mps a lot of the time yeah, so yeah, yeah but that, i guess that's the the nature of politics but uh no I always, I always think you're uh for a start when you whenever you're on the news quiz, you're very funny which is obviously the most important thing but i think you're uh Scrupulously fair and uh, as well. So, well, that's the thing: is you sort of got to go where the fish are biting, comedically. Otherwise,
1: it will look odd to or sound odd to anybody listening. And the truth is, is that for a while now, the Tories have been writing a lot of the best setups, and and Labour haven't (laughs) really been doing jokes. If you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So the Tories, they're throwing up sort of half follies quite regularly, and obviously that could change. But the odd thing for me is that, as you'll be aware, is that you know, done the show a while. Every time I do that, people go back to thinking it's the first time I've done that. I go, well, the <laughs> government must be in trouble if Norcott's giving them some shit. Meanwhile, on this podcast, like regular listeners
0: are, are contacting me going, have you switched? Have you switched? Have you flipped, <laughs> have you flipped Norcott? Have you switched? And maybe that's, there's something about modern politics in that. The sort of party alignments have have shifted someone. A lot of what the Conservatives have done has not really lived up to their label of conserving things or even you know the political definition of conservatism. So... Yeah, I think there's, obviously, there's disagreement across sort of left and right of politics, but also within the left and within the right as well. And I guess that, you know, it's natural that should come out in uh, political comedy. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the thing
1: is, is, is being a conservative voter that's really fed up with how they've performed is probably the default position. That's why the polls have changed. So. It's the most common position, and and I was sort of thinking it's it's interesting when you look at the Tories' record as well. If people, like for me, the most right-wing part of me is economically, right – So if you look at what the Tories have done, they could actually write a brilliant claim to a left-wing manifesto in that they've raised corporation (laughs) tax. They've sort of pretty much abolished uh, uh, dividend payments. They've uh, made it harder to make an income from renting second homes. They literally put money in people's accounts. There's another world where the Tories could go to the polls and say, look how unbelievably left-wing (laughs) we've (laughs) been.
0: That has left them in a very difficult position politically because... And, you yeah, know, as we talk about the Telegraph, sort of picks up on these things a lot from their political perspective, which I think is more extreme than it used to be. My parents always got the Telegraph when I was a kid growing up in Tunbridge Wells, which is about as Tory an upbringing as <laughs> yeah. as you, you could possibly have. But I think it, it seems to be you know, more, as most media outlets are, the sort of political standpoints seem more extreme, less balanced within newspapers or TV channels. So the Conservatives have a hard job Selling to their own voters, let alone trying to convert people to their cause, and I guess you know we, you see it quite often, don't you? When a government's been in for a long time, that their core support just slightly fades away. And I, mean, I guess at the phase that the Conservatives find them at is generally difficult, and I think the way that they've conducted things has made things infinitely more difficult for themselves as well.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think in that in that record, I did say you know they're talking about. Stop criticizing the government. And I said, Well, you first. I mean, like, <laughs> that's the problem, is they just sort of need to go like a week or two. I mean, you know, like, like baby steps to recovery. If you just say, Right, let's set ourselves a little goal of a week where none of us say anything that could be essentially appear on a campaign leaflet by the opposition.
0: Yeah, but that seems absolutely outside their skill set at the moment. Yeah, I mean, party infighting seems to be but just something that is one of the defining features of British politics. Now, whether that's because, because with our first-past-the-post system, the two main parties, Labour and Conservatives, are sort of strange coalitions of quite differing oh. views. I mean, that's, I guess, one of the things that gives us stuff to talk about is not just the fact that it's one party against the other, but oh. it's the parties <laughs> squabbling feverishly amongst themselves. And we've seen that, you know, particularly in the last few years of, um, of conservative government and the, the turnover of prime ministers that they've had yeah there's infighting. always that phrase
1: that people use with the Tories psychodrama and I yes. don't know if people know what that really means I just you know like in politics sometimes there becomes the groovy word to use yes and you think like what percentage of people actually know the difference between just a drama because I, I sometimes think is it's just it's like a difference between lying and gaslighting you go like, I think a lot of what's called gaslighting is just straight up bullshit <laughs> I suppose the other thing that um, I think Alistair Beckett King, when he was on the other week as well, made a, a really good point of saying that, that Labour essentially aren't playing fair in inverted commas, because they're just not saying any left wing stuff.
0: Yes. <laughs> so
1: yeah. That really makes it hard. It, it may that's one of the reasons that Tories have ended up fighting each other so much is because they're sort of, there's, it's not even a moving target. It, it's a target that hasn't even launched into the air yet <laughs> for them to shoot at. Uh,
0: yes. And I guess, you know, that's, the nature of opposition politics, particularly in the run up to an election, where you know, they don't want to reveal their hand, reveal too many policies to be criticised in advance, or to lessen the you know impact of any um, anything they launch ahead of the election. But that's just the nature of of politics, and as always, you know, and you t- we'll go back to that that point you made about you know, balance on a show like the News Quiz or BBC, you know, actually anything to do with the BBC, comedy will always address those who are in power. So, mm. you know, I, I mean, it's, it's quite hard to remember because it's got a long time ago now, but I'm sure there was a lot of sort of anti-Blair stuff, particularly in the the later years of
1: of Blair. It was, it was very much focused on on the
0: person though, the
1: personality, in, in a similar way that I think with... With Cameron, the early years of the coalition, it was more about Cameron and Osborne and austerity. Again, the Tories party hadn't been fully retoxified yet. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, it kind of focused on, on those things. But I suppose one of the things I wonder is, is, as you know, in broadcasting, once election campaigns start, the Ofcom scrutiny on balance becomes even more sort of uh, vociferous or, or focused is that what will happen, will it, this is what I'm trying to work out, will it get even worse for the Tories because even more of what's happened over the last 14 years will get discussed? Or will these kind of paradoxes or inconsistencies in Starmer's Labour Party, will it be that for the first time a lot of the public will start to really see them?
0: Yeah, that's quite hard to to predict, really. I mean, it of depends what Labour comes out with. I think they will not come out with anything too radical mm. or ambitious Partly because of, you know, I guess, the risk factor that that brings, but also just the the reality of what they'll be able to do with the economics that a, a new government tends to inherit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite it's quite hard to sort of predict at this point. And you know, comedically, you know, assuming Labour does win, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how some political comedy in this country treats a new government because inevitably you need to, a bit of evidence to do sort of satirical comedy and obviously that will take a little bit of time to see what a government is doing it'll be quite an interesting challenge i think and it'll be quite interesting to see how people people go about it if that result does happen which looks like a very small if
1: yeah i mean you're you're right like in terms of fair play they've got to do stuff and get it wrong for you to to say stuff but just the way that politics turns over now that's one of the things i I wonder about is it's such a different world since labour were last in there's more news channels that i mean just like the strike rate of every single day you've got ministers out on a million channels one of them's going to say something stupid it's not like it was before (laughs) you know the last time labour were in there was no real whatsapp do you know what i mean there wasn't ministers popping up on talk tv and gb news and (laughs) Or saying something a bit rancid on a, on a podcast. So that's what I wonder is if that that old-fashioned thing of smooth government is even possible in the modern age. So it might not be big policy stuff like you say, but it will be cock-ups.
0: Yes. That, it's interesting. I mean, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, whether the nature of modern media and the way that news is consumed and shared and the way that discourse happens whether it's made sort of political success basically impossible because whatever <laughs> yeah, anyone that. does, there'll be you know a significant proportion of people sort of publicly shouting it down in a way that before there was this mass media, mm. you know people might have been <laughs> shouting that in their own homes, but there wouldn't be these sort of online movements or uh, various different echo chambers, It's quite hard to imagine. It's quite a sort of cynical media landscape, and I include the public in that, in the sense of media, in terms of, you know, sort of sharing and discussing news. So whether anyone can actually succeed beyond their own supporters, I think it's become harder. What most people think. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. Is
1: what you love about
0: playoff the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT and NBA TV.
1: What do you think of, of, of comedy in the Sunak and Starmer age? SAS, as I like to call it. Like Sheer and Sutton, but but not good. Less exciting. Because I sort of found that under Corbyn and, and, and Boris... I didn't like it really, actually. I think some ideas were easy to attack, but from a personality point of view, people had invested so much on either side with those two people. You tended to whoever you were making a joke about, you invariably alienated the other side of the room. But whereas Sunak there's something quite funny about these two guys being quite technocratic, quite similar, quite slick, and desperately trying to make out like they're wildly different human beings.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? And, and- yeah, we had those sort of years in the latter part of the last decade with you know, Johnson coming to prominence, with yeah, you or know, further prominence with with Brexit, Corbyn in charge of Labour, Trump in America. These sort of extreme personalities, and that could be quite distracting. I found that a bit with with George W. Bush. of early in my comedy career, when I was starting to try mm. to do political comedy, that when you have these dominant personalities, that can be quite distracting from looking at the sort of more important stuff of what's actually what they're actually doing, what policies are being put through that isn't necessarily quite as easy to get a laugh out of but if you want to get the sort of the most resonant satirical comedy then I, you have to stretch it a little bit beyond those personalities so yeah and I guess with with Sunak and Starmer, the easy jokes are almost on their the sort of lack of personality but I don't think that's a particularly fruitful comedic route uh, again but then with we talk about the issue with you know attacking labor satirically at the moment there isn't quite enough almost policy detail to really get, get stuck into. And because it's opposition politics, there aren't things that have been done, which is, you know, where I guess the meat of satire exists.
1: Well, I suppose that for their time being, it kind of suits both parties to actually make it about those personalities in a way to try and construct them. And it's, it's resulted in, I think, some quite unseemly stuff at PMQs where already both parties' social media accounts are an absolute fucking bin fire. Labour, <laughs> I think, in fairness, started to fire the starting gun on this when they sort of said that for some reason, that because not enough paedophiles go to prison, that Rishi Sunak sort of tacitly approves of paedophiles being free or something. It was a really hard spin. <laughs> and then obviously the Tories have come back with saying that, that Starmer sort of loves the gangs. Like he loves gangs. He loves the uh, the migrant gangs. And you sort of think, well, he might have in his time represented some. I'm not sure he loves them. I mean, he, <laughs> But then Starmer at PMQs last week sort of said that Rishi Sunak during the financial crisis was betting against the British people. Now, I've seen Betfred offer a lot of weird odds <laughs> in my time. <laughs> Is it possible to bet against the British people? I suppose you can bet against most things.
0: Yes. Well, I guess that's sort of the way that international finance works, maybe... The 2008 crash would have been less severe for the world if it had had Ray Winston telling all the speculators <laughs> on stock markets, please gamble responsibly. So, um, the latest in play odds <laughs> on the British people now, <laughs> yeah. But that again, that's almost the way politics works that you, so you try to establish these almost accepted truths, whether it's that Starmer let Jimmy Savile off, whatever, and and Again, yeah, it might start from some scintilla of truth, but then the battle for perception becomes all-important. And that was that was another thing that was said in, in um, the week of that Hugh Merriman and Lucy Fraser episode. She was talking about BBC bias and it being a, an issue of perception or what matters is people's perception, which is a, a very dangerous road to go down. But a lot of politics is about that. It's about creating these mm. impressions of your opponents that then become almost accepted and that's i guess easier to do than to forensically pick apart their uh, policies but i mean if you if you think about it on a basic level what they're
1: sort of saying is you love nonces you love terrorists now that is the <laughs> most fucking populist take that you can go for because if you actually look at um, the polling on what we should bring back the death penalty for it's literally nonsense and terrorists <laughs>
0: But it's sort of playground
1: level. Yeah. And that, this is what I was thinking, Andy, is, is if, you know, during Corbyn and, and J- Boris Johnson is the, because they both looked a bit shabby and because they both were a bit sort of chaotic in their own ways and, and particularly if Boris was accused of gutter of politics, I sort of wonder if just the fact that these two guys are quite slick and establishment looking, they wear nice suits and they comb their hair, <laughs> if they've sort of been let off
0: a bit for some actually some quite low, low tactics, really. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely an element to which both of them are following fairly extreme examples of leadership. So, yeah, I guess, you know, if people had turned against Johnson and how he did things and Corbyn and how he did things, then, yeah, an element of neutrality gets you a bit of leeway. But again, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves as we get closer to an election and, and as people, I guess, focus more on the more sort of relevant policies and and actions. That's
1: the thing. So I don't know if we'll have a head to head leadership debate, but there was something I said on news, Chris, the other week, about it being like bullying the two biggest nerds into having a fight and then everyone <laughs> everyone regretting having done that because of what an unseemly spectacle. Is that <laughs> that that's sort of my fear is that they'll either play it so safe or it'll be it would just be a hard watch, actually. It'll be a hard watch and then this could be a real low turnout election. That's one of my Big hunch that whatever the result is, like, actually, I think for both parties, just getting people to go out and vote is going to be one of the biggest challenges.
0: Yeah, again, that's an an interesting aspect of elections that we tend to overlook a bit. And like I mentioned, Blair, in 2005, there was massive disillusionment, I think, with politics on all sides, and the turnout was below 60%. I think it was a bit up in uh, mm. in 2010, as tends to be mid-60s. I mean, historically, it was always sort of mid to high 70% would vote in uh in general elections, and you know, I don't know if we'll ever get back to that. I mean, even the Brexit referendum, where every vote did count, was still, what was it, below 75%, I think? It, I think it was bang on 75%, yeah. Yeah, you know, how, how do you get a more engaged electorate? I don't know. It's. I think it is quite difficult, and that's, I guess, one of the big challenges for Labour is that they don't want to be just a default. They want to get a, an element to which people actively want them to be in power that will give them draw a higher turnout and potentially a bigger margin of victory, and then you know if, if it's just a sort of anti-Tory vote, that you know might sustain them through one term, but it doesn't give them a lot of a lot of leeway. I think
1: that's a really good point. I mean, yeah, you can the G T T O get the Tories out crew. That's the most motivated crew in politics at the moment. But that, that easy, you can only really play that, that card once. And, you know, just one other thing is the moment you started talking about stats and politics, I immediately thought this is what we need more of in politics is <laughs> Andy Zaltzman just doing numbers.
0: <laughs>
1: okay, just chipping into the chat with Andy there to remind you that the spring League of the tour is well underway. And where am I going this week? I am going to Grimsby going to Grimsby when am I going to Grimsby on Friday I should have had this fucking sorted I'm just clicking into it now where am I going all right Stroud this Thursday the 8th I think there's about 300 tickets sold there but there are there's space for more Grimsby I'm going to Grimsby and I, and I said this online and I mean it if that doesn't sell out right because it's not even that big a room and it, I'm not coming back I know. oh Jeff what a loss I know I know I'm not coming back right because I was told so many of you come to Grimsby, come to Grimsby. Well, when I say so many, I mean three. Maybe that's the problem, is is that you were the only three people in Grimsby that actually wanted me to come. Um, I'm going to Grimsby on Friday, the 9th. Uh Chorley Theatre on Saturday is already sold out. Then next week, Valentine's Day, Wednesday, the 14th of February, where better to take your partner than the Mansfield Palace Theatre to see Basic Bloke by Jeff Norcott. She will what a treat. Say, say get <laughs> Get get doled up, love. I'm taking you to the palace. And then either that or take it to Sellers Park. Um, And then Thursday the 15th, Loughborough Loughborough Town Hall. Uh, That one, yeah, we've got good numbers in, but there's room for a few more. And then I think Friday the 16th of February, Bromsgrove. I think that is now sold out, but um, you can check the website for that. Oh, I almost forgot. I almost forgot we've got a couple more new patrons. Let's have a quick look. So we've got... We've got Phil. Just Phil. I think things that Phil was a returner. Remember, the, the Patreon have run their, their payment thing, so if you've changed bank cards or whatever, do check if you want to keep receiving the content. And then we've got Carol Davenport. Oh, my God. Carol Davenport just sounds like the most fearsome corporate troubleshooter ever. Carol Davenport is coming tomorrow, guys, so we're going to have to pull an all-nighter. Carol Davenport. She doesn't miss a thing. She actually dreams in Excel spreadsheets. That's the rumour about Carol Davenport. And Susie, Susie Helvin. Susie Helvin sort of st- it sounds like you do the afternoon like drive time for one of the one of the more obscure heart fm type stations. Hi Susie Helvin here. Susie Helvin and the 90s. 90s magic every day on 90s heart. 90s 90s. Susie Helvin here. Do you see <laughs> Susie Helvin, really upbeat, really upbeat and loves banana rama. Okay, let's get back to the chat with Andy's Osmond. It does sort of bring me on to um, the cricket in a way, and, and you, apologies if you if you've told this story elsewhere, but just if you look at for a guy that loves cricket and stats like so, the best job, the only job in the world that's a dream <laughs> job has got to be doing it for Test Match Special. So, just how did that process even begin, let alone come to fruition?
0: Well, it began to go right back to the beginning, Jeff, in 1981 when England beat Australia in the Ashes. I was six years old. My seventh birthday, I think, or maybe it was Christmas that year, my dad gave me a couple of books about that Ashes series, one of which had Bill Frindle's scorecards in the back. Now, he was the guy Mm. that did the stats on Test Match Special through the 70s and, well, up to about 2009, I think he died uh, quite suddenly when he was still essentially the the TMS statistician. And I was just fascinated by, I was quite a mathsy kid. And I loved sport, but I was also quite shit at playing sport. Um, <laughs> I've slightly understated that when I said <laughs> quite shit. Anyway, I, I sort of loved reading about it. And I sort of, you know, would look, pour over these numbers and then my wild teenage years involved trawling the second-hand bookshops of Tunbridge Wells trying to find old <laughs> cricket books. So I was, yeah you know, really sort of, fascinated by the sport and the numbers associated with it so I really wanted to be a, a cricket writer when I was uh, I was younger and I didn't really know how to go about it I didn't really know what it involved um, went to University applied for various jobs in journalism after I left and get anything very good started doing stand-up and that sort of became my job slightly by by accident and I'd sort of forgotten about put aside the idea of working in, in, in cricket media, for, for a living so and then uh, I started doing my podcast the bugle with with John Oliver we talked about cricket quite a bit because we've got a big American audience and we'd like to goad them about how they <laughs> spurned the greatest sport in the world and someone from the Info website used to listen to it and they offered me a, a weekly column and said I'll oh, just try and write funny stuff about cricket and I thought well how mm. am i going to do that every week and I started playing around with their their stats engine their stats guru which is publicly available and you know I always knew a lot of stats from when I was a, a kid and used to you know re- mm. read all these these books. And that sort of became my angle on Crick Info was writing about cricket stats with a bit of humour. And then eventually, well, eight years after that, I got offered to do the One Day Internationals on Test Match special. And similarly to you know try and do stats. And did did that just come out of the blue? Did they sort of just get in contact with you? I'm not entirely sure. But I mean yeah the uh Adam for the producer, asked me it was the start of the twenty sixteen summer. I'd done some stuff on Test Match so far. So it was like an alternative commentary thing. So I done stuff with him and then he started doing TMS. I think he sort of suggested that they might want to use me for stats. And yeah, so they gave me the that summer 2016 asked me to do the one dayers and uh so my first day on test match special was the morning after the Brexit vote. Really? Yeah, it was England played Sri Lanka at Edge yes, So I've been sitting up remember. I've been sitting up all night watching the news and researching Sri Lankan cricketers. Yeah, which I think was possibly the weirdest way to go through Brexit night.
1: I can guarantee you you're the only person in the country doing that that night. <laughs> that particular with combination total yeah. <laughs> um, One thing I do wonder is obviously I love you I love hearing you uh, in the TMS commentary box. It's just it's how you deal with the, like the humor thing. How to know when to go and when to hold because Obviously, they're the lead personalities. You come in and absolutely smash it with loads of funny stuff. I mean, in longer chats, I guess it's more appropriate. But is that that something you're
0: conscious of? Yeah, I think when I started my first few games on TMS, I'd always have a few stats ready to go, and I still do that. But I'd sort of try and think of funny things that I could throw into the conversation. And I quickly realised that actually that doesn't really work. And it then just became a question of just sort of listening to what the commentators were saying and chipping in when I thought of something funny generally that I could just throw in quite quite quickly and so I, I try not to force it. Uh, yeah, I try with the with the stats to, to probably at times I, I, I chip in too much but I try to wait till I've got a stat that helps illustrate what's going on in a game or something that's of interest or backs up what the commentators are talking about but um, in terms of the, the sort of comedic side of things I just sort of trust my instincts really when it's the right time to with something.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you've never been a brain sort of like egomaniac type type of comic and it does sound like in a way that the, the comedy in TMS is a bit like Test Cricket in itself. Is one beautiful cover drive might be enough for a few hours. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's pretty basketball though, wasn't
1: it? <laughs> it's pretty, yeah. Maybe, maybe everything's got to go basketball now. <laughs> the commentators have got to be saying more and doing more. I mean... One thing, I mean, I've just like I'm sure people be interested about it, is just the mechanics of how it works, and 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 obviously like looking out for stats and and stuff like that probably demands a bit of focus. You know, how do you control the partisan element of it, particularly like last summer? You know, very close test match at Headingley, which probably what I think was the most exciting test match of the whole summer, actually. And and again, at the Oval with Stuart Broad and all that emotion. Like, how how does it feel generally in the pundits' uh, commentary box, and how do you deal with it personally?
0: Well, personally, like we sort of touched on earlier on, I fundamentally love cricket in general, but specifically Test match cricket. And yeah, I want England to win, but you know, if they lose and it's a good game, yeah, I'm not that fussed about it. And that Ashes was just so brilliant, objectively as a sporting event. Those you know five Tests all had amazing drama and four really close finishes, and then that the game that. That ironically ended in a draw was the only one that one team dominated when England were foiled by the rain in Manchester. So it was really just almost allowing myself to be caught up in that the narrative. That's how, you know the fascination of Test cricket is these elongated narratives, both within a game, within a series, over the the history of the game. And you got the subplots of the individual players and the contests and the conditions and all, and uh, and all those things. So it's just endlessly fascinating and you know to be able to just spend the entire summer wrapped up in this this narrative so I didn't find myself you know getting caught up with necessarily wanting one side or other to win Uh, it was really just being in a sort of dreamland as a cricket fan of seeing and particularly with this the way England is playing currently yeah yeah and just constantly attack both with the bat and with their sort of invention in the field that we see with Stokes's captaincy. So anyway, this is a very roundabout way of saying how we stay stay calm. And I guess that you know, for me, you know, I'm just chipping in every now and again. I'm trying to you know, find stats that help tell the story of the game, what is happening, what might happen, why things have happened, and and things like that. But yeah, you know, the, the commentators, I guess, that's their their job. And I guess the, the tradition of test match special commentary is that it's not particularly partisan. That you know, people mm-hmm. like they might want England to win, but always conscious of trying to tell a Sort a of fairly objective story and really just enjoy the game and, get, and and last summer was pretty much as good as sport can get, I think.
1: I, th- I think when you say story, that is the thing about Test cricket. I, I was tweeting earlier because, you know, we've had another brilliant sort of week of, of Test cricket and yet this conversation is still around. It's like, what, it's an anachronism. It's dying. And, and I've run this line a couple of times, but... I'm not sure I buy it when people say well the attention span isn't there for it at a time when people will sit down on on a given evening watch three to four hours of one drama I do it myself right yeah yeah I went to see Napoleon at the cinema and part of the appeal was there's three and a half hours long I was like good this is an epic it's an epic experience you got podcasts certain podcasts you know like Joe Rogan's podcast he's doing like three hours every other day (laughs) or something so I'm not sure if I buy this idea that there's not the attention span I suppose what it is is it's the marketing and maybe that's the answer is to try and talk about the stories the characters that, that build is, is that the answer
0: um well i think so and that's you know i guess what we try to do on on radio commentary but on radio you've got a bit of scope to delve into these things and 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 try and tell that narrative and and yeah we, we've talked to, uh, about this a bit on on tms and i've talked about it a lot with my cricket loving friends and my broadcasting colleagues that like you say this is a period in which there is a huge demand for long-form narrative, and mm. you see that you mentioned with yeah you know, the kind of TV epic box sets going back to you know the start of the millennium. Things like Twenty Four, I guess, and of the West Wing. This huge sprawling series with these great big complicated subplots, and that's essentially what Test Cricket is. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I do think it is largely a question of promotion and trying to be almost selling it like like a, a TV drama series. The thing is, it's it does take a bit of explanation. I guess you've got to be sort of yeah. inducted into how cricket works as a sport, which I think is not as complicated as as people often often make out.
1: And and also that that would be very of its time to say, oh, people, you've got to give it a t- bit of time. You've got to wait till season two. You know, you've got <laughs> to. I mean, again, like the overlaps with big dramas are, are quite sort of stark in a way, or quite clear.
0: Yeah, and I think that's you know one of the failings that cricket has had as a sport that it hasn't hasn't had faith in how great a sport test cricket is and mm. you know that the reason that it's fascinated people for 150 years now is that it has this strength of narrative you know the narrative structure of a, of a of a game is is sort of fascinating every ball moves it on in some way whether it's dramatically or imperceptibly so we've just got to try and and sell that and i'm sure it's something that people would enjoy if they're The access is there, and it's promoted and presented in a way that sort of shows quite why it is something that has fascinated people for so long.
1: And also, I suppose with cricket, with its history, if we're talking about the overlaps between this and the genre of drama, is it's got the greatest previously on of any sport (laughs) in because it's been played for fucking hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah. The previously could be like the longest bit of the show. (laughs) Just yeah. call it Binge Cricket. What most people think. Andy's also, I'd love to keep chatting uh, cricket and politics and stuff, but um, I appreciate you so much taking the time to be on the show. Is there anywhere I should be directing people? What's your situation with live dates, tour stuff? Where should people go?
0: Well, um the Bugle podcast is my main thing that I've been doing for nearly well, 16 and a half years. We've got some live shows in March, the details are on the com where you can also get access to all our all our shows. I should have a live tour late in the year, but I don't have dates for that yet. And the news goes we're about halfway through the first series of the year. So find that on BBC Sounds.
1: Cool. Okay. So, yeah, just go Andy's socials. You'll see it all there. And uh, Andy Zorsman, thanks very much for being on What Most People Think. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, that was the chat with uh, Andy Zaltzman there. Do, as Andy says, check out his podcast, The Bugle, and uh, check out the live shows. They should be fun. And, uh, yeah, look out for his tour dates, man. I mean, with all the other stuff he's he's done, don't forget a brilliant, brilliant stand-up comic. Okay, let's see if we've got a couple of reviews here before we go. Um, Just this is always a risk here where you go into the iTunes. Has anyone said anything nice? Uh, No, the last one... (laughs) it's always so embarrassing when that happens why don't i think ahead and check no i mean there was some nice there was a run of nice ones from early january and then nothing nothing for a while that's fine do you hear how fine it is so fine okay have a great week remember if you get mcdonald's drive through check while you're still in the queue that is the biggest life advice i can give open the bag and check don't don't be where i was don't be sitting in a In a lay by on the A14, just (laughs) in floods of tears, because you got a McChicken sandwich instead of a Big Mac.